0: at loveisrael.org that's one word loveisrael.org now here's baruch with today's lesson
1: there are times when they happen we see the significance of them sometimes at that time other times later But what i'm trying to say is that there are are these appointed times not speaking about the holidays, the festivals that we read about in the Bible, but but times when God is working in a significant way and we need to be prepared for them. In fact, it's oftentimes our preparation, our expectation, our faith that God will move in a mighty way, will do something great in our circumstances for us and for others that cause us to pray cause us to listen cause us to be prepared for that time when God moves in a very very distinct way when he delivers helps assists in order that his purposes might continue for his people take out your bible and look with me to the book of esther and chapter 7 the book of esther and chapter 7. Now the reason why I emphasize that the time is because finally we have arrived at a key time in this book of Esther. We see that God has already began to work to bring about change, that there's something that is distinct happening because of, of Mordecai and Esther because of prayer and fasting, because of submissiveness to the instructions of the man of God. All of these play a great role in bringing things about where God will move. He will behave in a very significant and pronounced way. Well, we know that that Esther, based upon the instructions given to her from Mordecai, She went and she petitioned the king that that the king might come to her banquet and not come alone, but with wicked Haman. They came, the first one, and the king wanted to know what is the purpose of this. He knew he was, was very, very wise. He knew that there was something that she was going to ask for. And he asked her what it was, and she said, If you will come the next night to the festival, this banquet, this party, this event, that I will prepare like she did the first night, then indeed I will do according to the king's word, and I will reveal what my petition and what my request is. Now there's no question. That, that the fact that she has made two banquets, that she's taken the time to do such a lavish evening, not once but twice, that this is a, a big deal. It is important to her. And the king, he has said repeatedly, Esther, my queen, whatever your petition is, whatever your request is, unto half the kingdom. And it will be done. It will be given to you. Now it's clear that she has found favor in his eyes. And this is the outcome of God's work. We need to remember she felt previously, because the king had not spoken to her, not called her into his presence for 30 days, that this was not going to end well. But God at work. God moving, God changing, God, and there's a very important concept. We spoke about it a few weeks ago. This word in Hebrew, lahafoch, lahafoch, to turn upside down. It's a word of change, of transformation, of transition, and it all began last week at the night. Nighttime, human sleep, but God. The one who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He was at work to bring about change, and we're going to see a pivotal movement in this book of Esther. Look with me, as I said, to chapter 7, and let's begin with verse 1. We read here, And the king came, and Haman to drink with Esther, the queen. So this is their banquet, and now they are sitting down, they are drinking together. This is the primary purpose of a banquet, to share fellowship, to to build relationships. But Esther, and everyone knows this, she has an additional purpose. So the king and Haman, He came to drink with Esther the queen, verse 2. And the king said to Esther, also on the second night at the festival of wine. Now, I've made mention that this festival of wine, it speaks about, about joy, happiness. And we see here that everyone, Haman, and the king, they came to be happy. And the king, and this is very, very significant, he also, in his statement, whatever it is, unto half my kingdom, it's going to be done. It will be given. He also wants to make Esther happy. So there is joy surrounding this this banquet. But we know something. We know that the whole motivation is not a joyful one, it's out of sadness, it's out of grief, it's out of the fact that there is a plot to exterminate the Jewish people. Now Haman sees this, he knows it, he's the architect of it, but he sees this as a source of joy. The question is, what about the king? How is he going to respond when he understands the implication of this this plot that he has given a sanction to, that he has has approved? So look again at verse 2. The king said to Esther also, on the second night of the banquet of wine. Second part of verse 2. What is... You're asking. Now, this is a word that's normally translated petition. What is it that you're asking, Esther, the queen? And it will be given to you. Now, this takes a lot of, of pressure off Esther. The king has already said, I'm inclined to do what you want. In fact, he has given his word, the king's word, that whatever she asked for, it's going to be, to be done. It's going to be given to her. And what is your request? And that's literally what it is. What are you seeking? What is your request? And then he says, unto half the kingdom, and it will be done. So in two ways, the king has a form. Yes, I am going to deal kindly, graciously, favorably towards you, Esther. Obviously, he is not going to in this half unto half the kingdom means he cannot put his kingdom at risk, but other than that, he is willing to grant her request her petition so things are are going well now. the fact that he says unto half not only do we learn from that that he's not going to injure his kingdom, he has a responsibility that goes beyond himself and his queen. But it's to show that he is very favorable towards her. And he's expecting something that's, that's big, something that is highly significant. And notice what happens, verse 3. And Esther the queen answered, and she said, If I have found favor... In your eyes, O king. And if concerning the king, it's good. So she's coming before him in a very humble, submissive manner, saying, If it's favorable, if I have found favorable favor in your eyes, and it's good, meaning it's something that, that you can agree that it's it's for the best of your kingdom. And now she's going to reveal what it is. Now again, I've tried to emphasize that the king, he believes that this is going to be something huge. Something of of great personal significance. And probably something that is expensive. Something that is difficult. He's inclined to do it. He has promised it will be done. But notice what she says. Verse Verse 3, second part, that it shall be given to me my life as my asking, as my petition, and my people as my request. What does she ask? That she's not killed and that her people are not exterminated. Now, this is something that the king never considered. He never considered that this plot of Haman would impact him so personally. But we find that Haman doesn't care about anything. He doesn't think about the implications. Now, there's a principle for us. When we are being manipulated by the enemy, it's usually because... We do not think through the implications. We're only thinking as Haman did, what do I want? What is pleasing to me? I'm not thinking about how it impacts others. And what does this show? A lack of, the lack of love for others. We've seen the foundation of the Torah, and this is from Messiah. He taught that the second great commandment, like the first, is based in love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Haman was not thinking about anyone else. He was only thinking about what was his desire, not how it would impact someone else, certainly. Not how it would impact the king, how it would impact the kingdom, only himself. So when she says, let it be given to me my life as my petition and my people as a a request for, now verse 4, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to to be annihilated. That word, le'abed, to perish. So she says, this is a big deal. We're not wanting wealth. We're not wanting something that's material. We're not wanting something that is is of this world for the sake of the gratification of the flesh. She says, what I'm asking for is the life, my own life and the life of my people. That we would not be exterminated by the plan of, of Haman. Now look at verse verse 4, the second part. She says something of, of great significance. It shows, once again, her humility, her submissiveness, and her desire to be faithful, loyal to the king. That she's not someone that is all unmindful of him and just thinking about herself. Because she says... And if we had just been sold as servants and maidservants, I would have been silent. She says, I would have been silent. I would have bothered the king. Why? Such an imposition on something that's just physical, something that's just, just being sold into slavery, I wouldn't trouble the king, she says. That the trouble is not worthy of the 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 damage to the king now there's two ways that this can be understood first of all she could be saying i'm not going to for myself and for my people cause the king any trouble that's one way it can be translated perhaps a better way is this that she's saying that the the Enemy. What's this enemy's doing? Is is cannot cannot be compensated to the king the damage that that this this plan is going to cause the king and the kingdom. So this underscores a very important point. She's saying in the second way that this can be understood. There's an enemy, and this enemy. He is damaging, and it cannot be compensated, the damage that's going to come by your enemy on this plan to kill the people. Now, what's another way to understand this second interpretation? Very simply, if all the Jewish people are exterminated, the kingdom won't come because there is a a plan from God that the people have to say, and have to be used by God in saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now someone will say, well, well, that is not enforced at this time. Messiah had not said that. But one of the things we learn in understanding Scripture is that the Word of God is not time-sensitive. It's eternal. God is always What was he saw beforehand, what what will be he saw in the past. God transcends this. And furthermore, that psalm, that psalm is very important. David, we see that he is the author, and therefore it was already written down the implications of of what had to happen. That there has to be a change. We see other prophets speaking of this. There has to be that change in Israel's spiritual condition for the kingdom of God to be established. What she's saying is this. You know, if this happens, and all the Jewish people are exterminated, it is going to, to damage the king severely. Because there will not be any hope of redemption any hope of God's plan being being fulfilled. So this is huge from a spiritual standpoint. Now, you know who knows that? The enemy. You know who doesn't know that? King Verosh. He's not thinking spiritually. Haman is only thinking of himself. He's an instrument of the enemy. So she says this important term here, about how, how the damage that this will bring about is not worthy, cannot be repaid to the damage it will cause the king, verse 5. And the king, Ahasuerus, said, and he said to Esther, the queen, who is this, meaning who is this one? And I don't know why, but some Bibles will say, and where, but it's the term, as a what. Meaning, what is this one? This term implies that the king understands there's something different about Haman. That he would have such a plan, a disastrous plan against the kingdom. So, who is this one? And what is the type of person, is the implication. What is the type of person who would fill his heart, and that's exactly what it says, a share me lao libo, that would fill his heart to do thus. Now, this also reveals important principles to us, and that is, there's a heart problem with Haman. He's got a deceitful and wicked heart, and there's only one solution for that. We're born with such a heart. The only solution is to implant in faith the word of God. To be thinking, remember the term heart goes along with thought. So to be thinking according to the truth, the revelation of God. Until I remove my way of thinking and replace it with the mind of Messiah with the word of God, with biblical revelation, listening to God, praising God, worshiping God for that illumination so I can understand his will, I'm going to be easily deceived, manipulated, and be an instrument of the enemy. So the king's right here when he says to Esther, who is this one? And what is this one? who has filled his heart. This shows a cognitive. He has filled his heart to do such a thing. Verse 6. And Esther said, the, the man who is an enemy or an opponent. Now we have two words, the word tsar and the word oyef. This word tsar is an enemy, so is the word oyef. So oftentimes we can translate it an opponent, an adversary, an enemy. Both words are are related to one another. They're synonyms. They have more or less the same meaning. Two words are used to show how despicable he is. Look again at verse 6. Esther says, the the man who is an enemy, an opponent, is this wicked Hamad. Now, it's greatly important that we see the adjective that describes Haman. She says, this wicked, this evil, Haman. Now, the reason why I believe it's so important is because this word ra, for evil or wicked, it shows in the simplest meaning that which is against the will of God, the purposes of God. And again, this has so much practical, spiritual wisdom. We need to ask ourselves, what am I seeking? What is my life based upon? Am I pursuing the will of God? Or am I pursuing that which is evil? There's only two possibilities. And when you are doing what you think is best, what you think you should be doing, what pleases you, what you think is the reason that you've been put on this earth. If all of that is based upon an unregenerated perspective, how you see things, you are just as wicked as Haman and will be used by the enemy. It's only when we say, not my will, but your will, O God. And it's only when we, and this is another very important spiritual truth, it is only when I begin to make a commitment, a serious and a long-term commitment to begin to apply the Word of God to my life, it's only when I have a, a consistent obedience. i want to say that again. It is only when you have a consistent obedience to, to the Word of God that you're going to begin to discover, to have revealed to you, for the Spirit of God to lead you into what truly your calling is. You you don't receive a call out of emptiness. You usually receive a call from faith and obedience being manifested in your life. So we don't stumble across, across it We don't just, you know, hear it in some uh, uh, mystical manifestation. It's not what feels so right to us, but it's exactly, exactly what is the outcome of walking obediently with God. Haman, he wasn't participating in the things of God. He was opposed to God, that wicked Haman. And Haman, when he heard this, That, and this is another very key thing, your plans for your own desires will eventually be exposed as sinfulness, and when you are known for who you truly are, and you're unregenerated, you're not saved, you don't have a relationship with the living God, when you're in that situation and who you are is revealed, it is going to be a fearful thing. Now, remember, there is a a lightning of this day to a day of judgment, a day of revealing. When, when every man is going to have to give an account, and now Haman, his wicked plot, what he wanted to do, the implications of it, all of this is being revealed publicly before the judge, before the king, and notice what it says here. Ve'haman Milifne ha'malach Vehamaka. And Haman, he was terrified before the king and the queen. Now I highlighted that last part before the king and the queen. You don't see such an expression of unity between the king and the queen elsewhere in this book of of Esther. What we find here is now there's going to be a coming together, an intimacy between the king and the queen, and it all is brought about because the king is going to agree with the will of God. Esther has been agreeing with the will of God. And the message is this. It's only when a husband and wife both submit to the will of God the things of God that is going to produce intimacy togetherness in their their marriage in their relationship. So Haman understands this unity that has been brought about between the king and the queen and that scares him because if they're going to be in agreement it's going to be his demise. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Verse 7. And the king, and the implication is this. When he heard the implications of this plan, that it was all stemming from Hamad, he was the one. When he heard about this, notice what it says in verse 7. And the king got up in his wrath it's a word for a hot anger he got up in anger in his anger from the festival of wine and the implication is he went to and it says to the garden of the palace and what happens well here again we're going to see how everything that Haman is doing from the moment that there was a change at that night. Remember, we talked about the importance of that term. Be'lailah ha'hu. From that moment, everything began to do bad, go bad for Haman. We remember that his wife and his wise counselor, his friends, they said something in unity. They said, if Mordecai is is of the seed of the Jewish people, then you will basically be destroyed before the one that you are beginning to fall before. And it's very important, this falling. Haman is in a position where he's going down. And the key word here is the word nofel for falling. And why is that so so significant? Well, look at what happens. We see the king gets up and departs out to the garden of the palace in his great anger, his wrath. But we see Haman, second part of verse 7, but Haman, he stood to seek his life. Now, isn't it interesting? It begins with Esther seeking her life. He already knows, Haman, this is not going to end well. The king's angry at him, so he's petitioning and bowing down. We'll see this in a moment. He stood to seek his life from Esther the queen. For he saw that the conclusion unto him was what? What? That same word, ra, evil. What does that mean in his eyes? Now, what's happening is the will of God is taking place. God is at move, but what's so interesting is that what God sees as good, Haman sees as evil. And this just supports what we learn in the days or in the prophecy of Isaiah and in his time when Isaiah said, that which is good is going to be called evil. And that which is evil is going to be called good. This, this wrong ability to discern what is right. Haman, he, he doesn't see it correctly. So he sees that this matter is coming to its conclusion, its ending in an evil way for him from the king, meaning the king, he's seen, he's discerned. The king is angry at him, and therefore he's petitioning Esther to intercede for him. How how ironic this change. Verse 8. And the king returned from the garden of the palace to the house of the banquet of wine, meaning where this banquet was taking place. And here's the key. Ve'haman nofel, did you hear that word? No fail. This is a word for falling. And what's significant is this? It's in the, in the tense, the present tense. Some, if you look at Christian uh, Biblical Hebrew, they will say in the, the participle, the present participle form. But the key here is that this construction, however you want to call it, It is a very unique one. Now, is it just never appears elsewhere in the scripture, this construction? No, but it's infrequent. It is not highly rare, but rare. It's not common. And whenever the present tense or the present participle appears, it is to show emphasis. It's to show this is important. Pay attention to this because there's something, there's a clue here to help us understand the message of the text. So here we find, look once more, that when the king returned from the the garden of the palace, he saw Haman, and what was he doing? Haman was falling, very important falling bending over he was standing seeking but he saw this wasn't getting him anywhere so he began to do what bow down fall over upon the bed which esther was was upon it so esther had gone into the chamber this was her chamber where she lived her private residency within the palace. And when the king went out, the implication is she went and sat upon her bed. And Haman, out of desperation, after fear, remember he was terrified. He stood and then he went further. He went and he pleaded for his life, bowing down, falling upon the bed of Esther, which is simply not done it is seen as disrespectful it is seen as a violation of that which is is under the king's authority it is seen as disrespectful to the king and this is exactly what's going to happen look if you would to the second part of of verse 8 where it says and the king said also To conquer the queen with me at home? He's saying, you have shamed me. This is what, this whole purpose, this whole plan, it was to bring shame to the king. This man being upon the bed of the queen is an insult. It's inflammatory to the king. It ought not be done. And we see something. This is highly informative because I've said to you, what Haman wanted all along was to be king, in the same way that Satan wants to be God. Read Isaiah fourteen. He wants to take his throne and place it over that of God's. That's why Haman. What did he he say? as advice to the king to honor the one that that, that the king delighted in? Well, he thought it was himself. He says, give me that that, that crown upon my head. Put those royal kingly garments upon me. Let me ride upon the same horse that the king rides upon. He wants to be king. And all of that is to the shame of King Ahasuerus. And this is what... The scripture is revealing to us that Haman wanted to shame, abuse, discredit the king. This is what the king is pointing out. And then we see also in verse 8, And this thing went out from the mouth of the king. And it says, And the face of Haman, it was covered. Now, some will say they covered his face, but we have to understand something. And this is where many people, they, they don't pay attention enough to Hebrew grammar. Because the word face, in English, face is singular. If we wanted plural, faces. But, but in Hebrew, the word for face is panim, it's always plural. So it's not them covering, but the face was covered it's an idiom for what well what we saw was this Haman wanted to discredit the king disrespect the king he wanted to be the king put him down but in the end it is the one Haman who is going to be shamed having his face covered it's an idiom for for being shamed in a very very great manner, in a very significant way. Now verse 9. And then we see a man, one of the, the eunuchs of the king, a very faithful servant. His name was Harbona. Harbona, one from the eunuchs before the king. He spoke. He says, also behold, now, this is an exclamatory meaning it's it 's exclaiming something it 's emphasizing it 's making it emphatic, so he says also behold this just just stands out as this is something that he is shouting out he 's exclaiming it in great significance. the tree some bibles will say gallows same thing it 's a place where you hang one it says also the would the tree, the gallows, which Haman had made for who? For Mordecai. Now, this shows that when, when Haman was in that courtyard, he was already telling people what he was going to do, why he was there, why he came in the middle of the night, that he had built these gallows, in order to hang Mordecai upon this, gave him great joy. It caused he couldn't even sleep, he was so excited for Mordecai's death. And now we see that because he said that, notice what Harbona said also the gallows which Haman had made for Mordecai. And who's this Mordecai? Harbona says, Who spoke good? concerning the king. Yeah, he certainly did. Remember that night, that all-important night when things began to change. What did King Ahasuerus learn? That it was Mordecai who spoke the word in order to reveal to the king's military, his officials, his servants, his, his guards, the plot to assassinate King Achish Mordecai did do good because he saved the king's life. And it says here that these gallows, notice what it says. It's a word etz, which is singular. Omed. Once again, it's that unique construction that causes emphasis. This, These gallows are standing at the house of Haman. And they're 50 cubics high. Now, remember, 50, we learned this. 50 has to do with liberation, freedom. Remember 50, what you come into your mind, jubilee. And jubilee is all about freedom, liberty. What we see is that judgment, this is where this is going to. We are moving now into a different phase in the book of Esther, judgment. And judgment is going to bring about a glorious change. You should write down that biblical truth. Judgment brings a glorious change. That's why when God judges in the book of Revelation, his wrath is poured out, the heavens rejoice. The heavens are praising God for righteous and just is his judgment. And what we're seeing here is that same thing. This judgment is going to bring about a good outcome. It's going to put the kingdom in a much, much better situation than it would have been in if Haman's plot would have been successful. So these gallows were standing at the house of Haman, 50 cubits in height. And the king says, hang him, meaning hang Haman, hang Haman upon it. Verse 10, our last verse. And they hung Haman upon the gallows, upon that wood, that tree, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And notice that. Isn't this a perfect example of of the change? Instead of Mordecai being hung This was Haman's intent. Instead of Mordecai being hung on that tree, who ended up being hung? Haman. He built it, and it was the instrument of his own judgment. I hope you see the the principle. What I do in trying to accomplish my own will is going to be a source of my own judgment. It's going to condemn me. It is going to, and hanging, by the way, hanging brings about shame and not only defeat, not only death, not only judgment, but this concept of of shame. So when one follows his plan, his purpose, it ends in a shameful way of judgment. Last verse once more, and they hung Haman upon the gallow, which was prepared for Mordecai. And it was after that that we see, remember the king was very angry. It says, once he heard, this is the implication, that Haman had been judged and was dead. It says, the anger, the wrath of the king subsided. And what we are going to see here is in the same way that the anger against Vashti, same word, subsided. And this brought about a change. And that change focused in on Esther. But we're going to see that now this subsiding of the king's wrath is going to bring about a very surprising change. And it's when we understand what judgment, the judgment of the evil one, is going to produce, we should get excited. Because God's will, that's what judgment brings about. Judgment destroys that which is against God's will, so the purposes of God can be manifested. And that's where this book of Esther, in chapters 8 and 9, in that final chapter, a very short one, chapter 10, is going. We're going to learn things about the outcome of God's judgment that should excite you and show that God's judgment brings about the fulfillment of his glorious will. Don't think that judgment is a bad thing, not for God's people. It brings about vindication. There is an inherent relationship between redemption and being made ready for God's judgment, that this judgment time is going to bring about a wonderful conclusion for his people. Well, I'll close with that until next week, when we enter into chapter 8 of this scroll of Esther. Until then, may God bless you. Shalom from Israel.
0: Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Thank
1: <laughs> you.